This podcast episode is brought to you by App Annie, the leading global provider of mobile market data. Now, personally, when it comes to exploring the market and creating a winning mobile strategy, I do it all with App Annie. I track the top charts, rank history, get download and revenue estimates. App Annie also helps me to understand detailed usage of detailed usage data of my competitor's game, and that's actually really helpful. And if you're in the marketing side, App Annie is there for you as well. It helps you to understand what it is you need to do to increase your discoverability and how you should improve your advertising strategies. Now, combined with unparalleled service and support, there's really no reason why you shouldn't be using App Annie. So go to appannie.com and sign up and tell them hi from your friends at Deconstructor of Fun. This podcast episode is also brought to you by IronSource. Now, IronSource is one of the biggest platforms helping game developers to monetize and market their games today. And they work with some of the world's most successful game developers. Just look at any of the games you have on your phone, and chances are they're working with IronSource. Now, what makes IronSource unique is the way that their platform closes the monetization and marketing loop so that developers can optimize both sides to accelerate the growth of their games. And hey, if, if you like Deconstructor Fun Podcast, you'll love IronSource Level Up Podcast. And no, it's not because yours truly and the good old Joseph Kim have co-hosted some of the, uh, the Level Up Podcast episodes. <laughs> not at all. It's because the Level Up Podcast features game industry leaders talking about everything related to game growth and development. So, if you're interested in hearing from successful hyper-casual game developers, or really any successful game developers for that matter, you can check out the podcast on Apple, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundLink, or the Iron Source website. You'll find the link to the Level Up podcast in the description of this episode. So, get you some Iron Source. Hi everyone, welcome to Twig 44. Today we have a new crew here for for today's podcast. We are joined by guest host Josh Burns and unfortunately Eric Crest and Mishka are out on vacation, but Adam's back. Welcome back, Adam. How was your vacation up in like a cabin in the woods or something like that? <laughs> it was great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's great to to you know rest and relax, get away from civilization, get away from email every day uh no canada's amazing right and josh could you um for for our listeners in the audience who don't know who you are could you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what what you do yeah uh so i've been working in gaming industry for i think just over 10 years uh like many started at ea for a while uh working on casual web games uh which makes me feel somewhat old since it was before the smartphone I uh, worked at Pogo.com, and then after that, I uh, worked at a game publisher uh, called Six Waves, which is actually where I met uh, Joe, uh, working on uh, Galaxy Rangers. <laughs> Perfect. Galaxy Way back. Preface, I guess, Galaxy Rangers for Facebook platform. Uh, and then after that, uh, I started working on my own. So almost seven years, started a company called Digital Dev Connect, just focused on the mobile gaming space. Uh, working with developers, um, uh, service providers, companies in and around mobile gaming uh, across a variety of business areas, product marketing, uh, whatever, you know, whatever people will pay me to do, uh, which has been <clears throat> been pretty fun and exciting. And uh, I'm also 
uh, working with the team at grow.co on gaming insiders, um, the newsletter I write every week and also the conference, um, that we did, uh, this year with the gaming focus for the first time. So yeah, excited to, uh, to be on the, on the podcast, love to use a lot of my, sometimes feels like useless knowledge, uh, to share it with everyone, uh, <laughs> get it out there. So yeah, cool. Great to be here. Awesome. And for the articles that we're covering today, we're actually going to try and cover five today, starting with Tencent doubling down on season passes as mobile titles drive revenue. The second is Ninja already has a million subscribers on Mixer. The third is Roblox, Roblox surpasses Minecraft with 100 million monthly players. The fourth is Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft to require loot box odds disclosure. And finally, we're going to end with Apex Legends Forum Furious as devs call players asshats and freeloaders. So that should be an interesting one. So hold on for that one. But we're going to kick it off with uh, an article from Gamasutra, Tencent doubling down on season passes as mobile titles drive revenue. So uh, Adam, you want to take that one? Yeah, for sure. Um, so we've covered a little bit about battle passes and season passes in the past. Um, but it was actually great to kind of uh, see further data points emerge from the market. So um, within this article from Gamma Sutra, um, was taking a look at the company's 10 cents fiscal report for Q2, um, basically talked about how revenues were increasing 18% year on year uh, to 12.9 billion. Profits rose by about 30, 35% to 3.5 billion. Um, Tencent attributed a lot of this growth to season passes, uh, specifically battle passes, um, especially in PUBG Mobile. Um, it now actually intends to bring that similar monetization model to all of its other major titles. Um, and the direct quote here is, our data suggests that season pass spending is largely complementary to existing item sales model, as well as enhances player activity. So, um, yeah, I think as many of our listeners here, we, we're big fans of the Battle Pass model here on the podcast. Um, and now with, say, Supercell and Tencent, both now really clearly showing being very bullish on their Battle Passes after they've implemented them. Um, it's extremely likely now that the entirety of the mobile and console market <laughs> are going to be implementing Battle Passes like crazy now. Um, just like Gotcha. Uh, this will be a major push from developers to include in a lot of titles. Some titles, of course, that would use it and some titles that would use it poorly. Uh, but it is also notable um, in the news this week, uh, that Epic and Psyonix, the de developer of uh, Rocket League, uh, decided to actually remove loot boxes uh, from Rocket League and replace them with a battle pass system. Um, it wasn't quite clear there. I think that there might be some still some randomized reward systems there, but the removing um, the blind loot boxes from Rocket League. Um, the key here um, that I think from this like 10 cent article um, is saying that just so you can kind of take in this data point with, with some grain of salt is that 10 cent is saying that it's complementary to revenue. So I wouldn't take this as saying that loot boxes or sorry, uh, battle passes are actually dominant, um, that this is something that they see as adding on top. Um, and it also overall enhances player activity. I see that actually as an increase in engagement and retention uh, within their key uh, games that they've launched with Battle Passes. Uh, and I can definitely see this impact. Um, PUBG Mobile's implementation of the Battle Pass is uh, industry leading and giving very, very clear improvements 
um, should be giving very, very clear improvements to conversion, retention, engagement. Um, and of course, through those three, actually driving overall revenue. Uh, where I don't see this happening is actually have, becoming, say, the dominant form of revenue for the game. Um, this is more likely to come from the actual gotcha that, that runs underneath uh, the PUBG Mobile Battle Pass. Um, that's, it, it's a bit interesting here because if you look at PUBG Mobile, PUBG Mobile has loot boxes underneath, but Call of Duty, um, the, the new game in partnership with Tencent and Activision, do not have loot boxes underneath. Um, so a new game does not. So this is one data point here where I actually could be wrong. Um, there could be a seismic shift in the market here that a conversion feature is actually driving more revenue than a spend depth feature. Um, but I've, I personally, I find that very unlikely still. Um, I still think the battle pass is a very strong component, but I still feel like it's not going to be dominant in terms of revenue. Um, but when you start looking at PUBG Mobile's overall revenue curve, um, it's actually been a steady continuing growth rather than say spiky around when battle passes launch. Uh, if you compare this to things like Dota 2, uh, Fortnite, Clash Royale, uh, Clash of Clans, battle passes actually seem to have very, very major spikes of revenue at the beginning and then taper off quickly during the season. So uh, the actual impact of the battle passes typically are more of a spike uh, versus PUBG Mobile's is a continuous growth, which is very interesting. Um, but I would still say if you as a developer are gonna actually start implementing battle passes, think of this as a conversion feature, not a spend depth feature. Uh, you need to actually have supporting economies underneath your battle pass that can sustain the generosity of this battle pass. Um, JK actually mentioned this a lot on the podcast before with Clash Royale, uh, where their battle pass system has some risks of actually inflating some of the economies um, with their progression. Um, so you have to make sure that you think of your battle pass as a season-long event and one that the new sources of currencies in your economy actually still need to be sunk throughout that, that season. Uh, you need the spend depth. Uh, for the currencies that you're giving out. So um, for cosmetic economies, um, you have to make sure that you get your player contract right. Uh, this is a little bit different because we're not giving out consumable items that kind of get sunk into an economy. These are uh, cosmetic items that duplicate items don't really have much value. So in the case of um, taking, say, direct comps from Fortnite, one warning I would give is that Fortnite's Battle Pass content actually has a ridiculous cadence. Um, the amount of cosmetic content that Epic can churn out is madness. Uh, so I would make sure that as a developer, you're aware of, of what it takes to run an effective battle pass system um, and consider adjusting some of the player contracts and commitments that you make uh, because something like Fortnite actually commits to vaulting all the content at the end of the pass, making sure that every content at the end of the battle pass goes away forever. Um, whereas PUBG Mobile does not have that, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but those are my notes. Uh, JK? Yeah, so from my perspective, just looking at the implementation of Battle Pass and Clash Royale, what they call Pass Royale, it, I'm very impressed. It's such a beautiful implementation, extremely well-designed, and really hats off to those guys for being so brilliant in terms of their specific implementation. And maybe I'm extrapolating a little bit too much based on the great work from Supercell, but it makes me think that for the games that do have enough economic depth, Battle Pass should be able to go everywhere. This is, to your point, Adam, almost as big of an invention as Gotcha. And putting my game designer hat on for a minute, the feature is so beautiful in that it does so much. It's, as you pointed out, a retention, engagement, and monetization mechanic but also a progression mechanic and effectively legal price discrimination. And on top of all of that, 
at least the way it's implemented in Clash Royale, it serves almost like an adjunct store page. So it's super crazy in terms of the scope that it has. Anyway, I fully expect everyone, brother, mother, cousin, grandma, to be jumping on the Battle Pass bandwagon, just like everyone is jumping into Match 3 and our Chero clones. But for me, I'm probably going to be most interested to see what else you can do with Battle Pass for different kinds of games that are not driven via economic depth or a large cosmetics inventory. So for example, what could you do for a runner or for match three, for example? That'll be interesting to see the kinds of experiments in the markets around those kinds of games. Josh, what do you think? Yeah, so I'm gonna focus on, uh, I think the sort of macro part here, cause you guys have really dove into the design and um, really into the battle pass as sort of a concept. So uh, to me, if I focus a lot of my work around uh, you know Asia and you know, I, I pasted in here a chart, which unfortunately nobody on the uh, listening can see, but, you know, the, the revenue for this game really takes off uh, <clears throat> in the last few months. And, uh, you know, I think that's really exciting. I think in China, there was a huge issue, obviously, sort of a regulatory winter uh, where, you know, things were uncertain, even for companies like Tencent. Um, but, uh, you know, I think when they basically created this uh, Peacekeeper Elite version, which is sort of the PG version of, of PUBG Mobile for China, you know, th there's clearly a huge appetite uh, for this type of game and, you know, for this specific game in general. Um, so I think for Tencent and for the market overall, it shows that, you know, this demand is still there despite all the regulatory changes. I mean, this game is making, you know, $5 million a, a day uh, and that doesn't even include, like, the Chinese Android revenue. Um, and, you know, I think they said 50 million daily active users. Um, and they unfortunately don't split things out between the different versions, um, whether it's the version for Chinese market um, or Android versus iOS. Um, but, you know, I think uh, this is pretty exciting to see from just a macro perspective that the market there is still very much alive uh, despite all the regulatory changes. Uh, and that they're able to pivot to get this working um, and appease the regulators. So, you know, I think that's great. Um, you know, I, I think like you guys have touched on, I'm curious to understand how much, you know, revenue lift uh, the battle pass system has actually had. Uh, I don't, unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever, ever be able to get those kind of details. Um, Cause I think I wouldn't be surprised like you're talking about if they start rolling this out across our portfolio, since many of their games are focused on, you know, more of a, let's say, you know, core audience um, that probably be more palatable to, to this type of monetization uh, model. Um, and I think also, I wonder, you know, the success of this game, you know, what does this mean for, for, the, for the potential and frankly interest in, in getting Fortnite out in Chinese market, uh, which again is still caught up in the regulatory sort of process, you know, with this Battle Royale title just crushing. Um, is there any urgency to, to bring, um, you know, bring Fortnite out in China and get that working? So, you know, overall, uh, an interesting article and great to see that sort of things have picked back up to total domination again for, for Tencent. <laughs> yeah. All right, moving on to the next article, which is from Engadget, which is Ninja already has a million subscribers on Mixer. And so this article talks about how Tyler Blevins, AKA Ninja, the popular Fortnite Twitch streamer, left Twitch and actually jumped onto Microsoft's Twitch competitor called Mixer. 
and Ninja was rumored to have been paid $50 million to jump over. In addition, Microsoft subsidized a one-month subscription on Mixer to Ninja, which, which I also signed up for, which will likely cost $5.99 a month after September 30th. On Mixer, Ninja quickly hit 1 million subscribers in like four to five days, but he you know, still has a ways to go to get back to the 14.7 million, which is what he had on Twitch. And my own take on this is that I think this is a great move for both Ninja and Microsoft. You really can't think of much else that can move the needle for Mixer as much as Ninja. And with all the users impressed Microsoft got, 50 million may not actually be too bad. On Ninja's side, Fortnite viewership has been dropping. And for him, uh, viewership had dropped from over about 50K viewers per stream last year to dipping under 30K uh, per stream this year. And so 50 million plus 1 million paying subscribers is, is a really good deal for him, in my opinion. And so good for him to get paid and lock in profits, given how quickly the games market can change. What, what do you guys think, Adam? Uh, is it 1 million paying subscribers or is it just 1 million subscribers? Well, I, I think because Microsoft is subsidizing that, it's basically, it's going to count as paying subscribers. My, my understanding is he's actually going to get you know, they, they get the subscription package and uh, Ninja's going to get some money from, from those paying subscribers. Okay, yeah, because there was some, like, promotion thing happening right. in the beginning, right? Right, yep, yep. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I'm still a little bit confused on the, the promotion and exactly how that subscription works, but overall, I, I definitely agree with you that the Ninja taking this deal um, to kind of cement his future is, is a smart deal. Um, I would say much more on Ninja's side um, for now. Uh, I think... Fortnite overall is slowing down, as you said, uh, and gaming gamers' interests are definitely very fickle. So um, it's a good time to cash in um, because he's just unlikely to reach the peak that he's been at right now, um, just just based on the gaming market. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how Twitch and YouTube respond to this. I think the funny story of the week was the the hiccup from Twitch when they started promoting <laughs> porn on the <YouTube laughs> channel. Um, but I don't expect that to be their real response. Uh, but seeing if they start to actually start locking down some of these kind of exclusive streamers, some of their bigger streamers away from Mixer. Um, but yeah, I would see this similar to the, the, the war for launchers on the PC, um, where similar to like Epic opening a store or Stadia, et cetera, exclusives are just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Microsoft will actually need much more than just Ninja to actually move content creators over and viewership. Um, so I would say that like, it, it seems like Mixer is aiming for kind of the standard Microsoft model where they're trying to follow using kind of a, a slightly stronger feature set than Twitch and YouTube. So um, interestingly, they have like an XP leveling system that they have within it. Um, they have this like hype zone thing where you can actually be jumping between streams. Um, it'll actually be automatically picking which one has uh, the highlight in the current match. There's kind of interactive voting systems, uh, which is kind of improving on the Twitch Plays X type of game. So when Twitch plays Pokemon all together, um, people can actually vote for what happens, um, as well as co-streaming. So you can actually have um, what I see a lot of is that even with Ninja or uh, say Dr. Disrespect for Apex, you'll, you'll watch the whole team, um, but people typically will watch all those streams at the same time. Um, but overall, I'm not really an expert on this in terms of streamers, so I'm going to avoid making a call whether this, this feature set is actually sufficient. Um, my 
uninformed check is that this isn't going to be enough yet to kind of move the needle. Um, but Ninja definitely was a big deal. Um, but yeah, again, I'm not really quite clear on the subscription service. It sounds like Microsoft is giving out free subscriptions to Ninja for one month. But I don't think afterwards they're going to be actually gating his streams after that, right? That just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, no, I think the subscription gives you additional, you know, additional things that you can watch and stuff like that. It yeah. sounds like custom emotes and ad-free watching, or is there additional streams that you can watch? Yeah, you know, I should check that. <laughs> yeah. but I, I signed up for it, but I haven't, I haven't started watching it yet. You just, you just, I'm still on Twitch. <laughs> you're just throwing $6 a month at something? You don't know? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I signed up for the promotion, right? That's so I'm getting that first month free. So. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, but, okay, and then is it a platform sub or is it a ninja-specific sub? Because in, like, in the article, it's talking about, like, buying buying ninja but like yeah. that this is the same price as twitch prime which is a platform subscription right my my understanding when i signed up for it was that it was a ninja subscription but um yeah i, I should check that I, but th that's the thing is like there might be a lot of people like me who are like oh okay cool a free subscription sign up and then don't go <laughs> don't go back or like think okay I'll, I'll go back later but they never go back so i don't know yeah, that's where i'm like okay where where's this one million number really coming from then right right like how real is that one million yeah yeah i think it's my understanding i think it's like a patreon or something where you it, the creator itself is is generate generating getting a cut of that subscription revenue yeah so it is like creator specific but again i'm not <laughs> i'm also not an expert um but yeah i mean my 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 thing is like you know yeah, is basically how does this grow the platform? Um, and is this just like, if you have, I, I described him as the LeBron James of live streaming, where he's kind of like the outlier, which based on my kind of research, you know, he is sort of the, the power curve of, of uh, sort of followers. He's at the, you know, the very top. Things drop off pretty fast. Um, so, you know, even having this, you know, the, the guy currently at least, um, how does that going to grow the platform for, you know, thinking about Mixer as a platform? Are people just going to come to the platform to, for, for Ninja or, you know, is this going to bring other creators uh, as well as like viewers to the platform and stick around? Or is there really, you know, not going to be sort of like a desert wasteland like around him where there's not really much else going on? Um, I'm not sure how even in the medium term that's going to be super beneficial for growing growing the platform um despite i think the feature set you know it seems to be you know superior potentially but like we know in in you know on the content side like that doesn't necessarily mean that you're you know gonna have success so um uh yeah it'll be interesting to see how this grows the platform like overall from both the streamer as well as the viewer side um and then the one other thing i i remember reading about like someone just hypothesizes you know is this deal greater than um than just the you know mixer is this is are they going to use him to launch like the new console uh that's coming up um and then that could be really interesting as long as he's you know still you know still the sort of top of the top of the mark for streamers that could be very interesting and frankly more more impactful for for microsoft if he's sort of you know helping launch this this new console right Cool. Okay. So moving on to the next article, 
Roblox surpasses Minecraft with 100 million monthly players. And this is from pocketgamer.biz. And this article is about um, uh, Roblox, which is the kids-focused sandbox game similar to Minecraft, and how Roblox has hit 100 million monthly players, which now surpasses Minecraft. And this is despite recent coverage of Minecraft from popular YouTubers such as PewDiePie and Jacksepticeye. And Roblox, for those that don't know, first launched in 2005, so quite a long time ago, with just 100 players and a few creators only, slowly building up over time to where it is now. And uh, Minecraft uh, uh, currently has, according to Microsoft, 90 million monthly active players. Uh, but it was also, in a related article, it was also announced that at the Roblox Developers Conference that they are on track to pay out $100 million in 2019 to Roblox developers. So uh, just to give people context, the, the Roblox, at least the mobile revenue, has been on a tear. Everything going up and to the right. Sensor Tower puts last month's July net re revenue at over $32 million, which represents almost 9% compound monthly growth since January of 2016. So really amazing growth there. And I personally don't know this category well. I mean, I've got kids that went through a Minecraft phase, although, you know, my younger daughter, who's four, still plays, but my older kids, who are seven and nine, uh, have are pretty much just playing Legend of Zelda now. But from my perspective, the main challenge for Roblox, if I understand the demographic correctly, will be to expand older. Um, what I've heard is that, uh, from, from someone that works there, is that a, a lot of the uh, you know, kids kind of 13 to 16 are players. And then when you get to kind of 16 plus, you kind of shift and become a creator. Um, and someone, that, that, that person also mentioned that they're going to try and support games like Fortnite someday in the future. So probably the main challenge for them is is then to like be able to support those kinds of games and age their audience up. But I don't know. What do you guys think in terms of Roblox versus Minecraft? Adam? Um, yeah, I was actually thinking about that same issue as as players kind of age out. Um, just thinking about how Fortnite and Epic actually added that creative mode within their game. Um, interesting you say Legend of Zelda. I think there was an article this weekend um, that somebody had recreated the original Legend of Zelda inside of Fortnite's creative mode. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I, I think Epic is actually trying to aim for a little bit of this, right? Just because I, I, it's, it's interesting, this model, this kind of like sandbox model where um, everything is so user generated when there's all of these modes that players can play every single time you come in. It's almost like an app store um, where you can just come in and there's so many different experiences players can actually be playing through. Um, it's a very sustainable model because um, I, I think I think if we just look at Roblox in comparison to Minecraft, you could clearly see this was going on and this was going to happen. Roblox surpassing Minecraft years ago. Um, just that that hockey stick growth was very, very clear. Um, Roblox performance has been, I would say, like the dream of anyone in the business of games. They've actually managed to build sustainable growth in audience and revenue for decades, right? And I think on the monetization side, it's interesting because since they've been around for so long, their player contract is actually that they have microtransactions throughout the game. Uh, which include pay to win um, and include cosmetics as well on top of that. On top of that, um, in each game mode, because developers can actually create whatever 
games they want within them. Um, developers can actually create their own microtransactions within it. Um, so it's, it's just, th this platform is just so flexible in terms of how it can actually monetize and how it's doing. And I think like every single time I hear a game pitch that says, you know, we're going to create the most social match three game, the most social right RPG game that the world has ever seen. Um, this is the one game I think that's actually accomplished that pitch in terms of actually building a social framework throughout the entire game and actually driving that sustainably. Um, but yeah, a, a huge kudos to Roblox. They built out a platform that allows devs to build out their own modes. And it's, it's to the point now that this is really like, I would say this generation's flash portals um, where just tons and tons of games experiences and this, this game will continue to grow. Uh, I don't really have too much besides that. I, I just feel like Roblox is in a very good position. Adam, are you, Adam, are you familiar with like the, when you, the, mo the mods and modes, like we actually, is anyone familiar with the kind of stuff, content that people are creating and like examples of things that are six? Yeah, I've been playing quite a bit of like the top 10 stuff. Um, it's, to be honest, there's, there's not a lot interesting there that could say be applied to other platforms. Um, like what was I playing the other day? I was playing like a pizza delivery game. Um, where you literally just deliver pizza around a map. So, it's, so they're basically mini games, essentially. Yeah, very much modes. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, it's in interesting to hear. I mean, J.K., you mentioned like they're interested in uh, supporting games, you, in, in, uh, external games. Do you have any sense of any more detail, like what they mean by that? I'm just. Well, I, I think what I heard is that they want. They, they wanted to make it so that uh, the games like Fortnite could eventually be supported. And I think currently, like even from a development perspective, I, I think they currently support Lua, which, you know, this, which is a scripting language, but then also potentially, you know, expanding the, the development capabilities with other languages and things like that as well. Oh, so you actually mean those games essentially is existing completely within yeah, so the, the ability okay. for the, the Roblox players and creators to be able to develop games that are much more robust, I see. Much, much deeper, is kind of what I, what I heard. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, I, I thought it was some type of like collaboration with external. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, I, I don't mean that that's not anyone's specific roadmap over there. It's just someone from there saying, yeah, I, you know, it would. I, I think they're, they've talked about it or they've discussed it, uh, but I'm not. So please, like, <laughs> this is not this is not Roblox's roadmap, but I. But apparently, yeah. they've discussed that. No, it makes sense, right? You want to you increase the quality of the content. Hopefully, it'd be you know right. more engaging. Um, you, you know, I think the the flash portal sort of type of content is interesting, but it's obviously very disposable. So um, yeah, I mean, you know, from my perspective, I think it's great to see these guys' success. Like we you talk, touched on, it's this thing's been around for a long time and I feel like it's, you know, been fairly under the radar since it does target in the industry because it does target like the younger demographic. Um, and I think, you know, my understanding is once it launched on mobile, it really, you know, that's where they really started to see the scale. Um, you know, and I think, you know, one thing to be clear on, I mean, this is like a top 10 to 20 grossing app uh, on iOS, um, not even game. I don't even, uh, so this thing is, you know, driving very meaningful revenue um 
on the mobile side. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the idea of being able to build, to build for the platform and create these tools for creators uh, to build content and, and, and obviously monetize as well is really compelling. I think from a business perspective, you know, the sort of user-generated stuff um, obviously will continue to engage and retain users. Um, and you can focus on building the, you know, the tools to do that rather than, you know, trying to, trying to build the actual uh, gameplay experiences. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we touched on it, like this sort of aging out of the game. Uh, in the article, it also actually mentioned that this is something they're very focused on. You know, how do we keep people, uh, keep players in the game as they get older and maybe they become <laughs> their, their content interests become more sophisticated than delivering, you know, pizzas around, uh, you know, a map or something, you know, they need, they want something more and how do they, how do they keep them in the, in the ecosystem? So, you know, but they've been around for 15 years and, and obviously things are just growing even faster. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I think like, uh, I'm focusing a lot on Asia and my work and I think the, the deal signing, they, you know, signed a partnership with Tencent to expand into China. Uh, and I, you know, I'm aware of them being pretty aggressive about, you know, adding resources and capabilities to be able to penetrate like these other international markets. So I think for the near to midterm, like things are looking very promising, uh, for them business as usual if they you know just get this content out to more players like around the world uh but in the you know in the longer term i think yeah you do have to look at that uh you know really long player life cycle and how do you keep players in this on your platform and ecosystem for you know ideally indefinitely um you know they are going to need that maybe additional technology to build more robust games or something else to really keep people around Right. So, Josh, how well do you think Roblox can do in China? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So, I think, you know, I read the article quickly. I think they mentioned at the end, I think they're taking sort of a different tact where it's like, have sort of more of an educational focus, it said. Mm -hmm. um, because I know one of the issues, like I have younger kids and they have these like media alerts and stuff. And like, you know, Roblox, I think is, you know, it's pretty, pretty well you know, has a decent rating. There's some concerns around like the chat and stuff and with, you know, kids and you have like older, you know, potentially older people and there's, you know, interaction there. So that's obviously a huge issue in, in the Chinese market is like, you know, censorship. Uh, and when you have a platform that has a, obviously a huge focus on chat and then obviously a huge focus on user generated, you know, uh, the content and, you know, the game experiences and game modes, you know, that's gonna be pretty tricky um to to sort of manage but um you know so it'll be interesting to see how they modify it my guess is that maybe you know it'll probably be its own sort of uh server if you will where it'll sort of exist in a firewall <laughs> literally i guess uh mm -hmm. around itself where you know the chinese sort of experience will be sort of separate from you know the global experience everywhere else um but yeah i haven't thought about it a lot in terms of you know, the potential, but, you know, the reality is it's a huge market. Uh, it's Tencent. Um, and, you know, I, I will say a lot of the deals with Tencent, you know, maybe, you know, don't always materialize to something great, but, you know, that's, if you're going to sign up on the, sign on the dotted line for, <laughs> to go into China, like there's not really, not a long list of, of folks uh, better than, than to work with. So yeah, I'll be interested to see. It's, I think it's gonna be pretty complicated because of the nature of this, 
sort of user focus you know everything's driven by sort of users creating content and communicating and stuff like this those are all very problematic things for that market right okay josh you want to take us to the next one yeah so um you know everyone's favorite topic uh loot boxes so <laughs> the next article is uh Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft to require loot box odds disclosure from GameIndustry.biz. Um, you know, so this is pretty straightforward, but uh, it was announced that uh, console platforms, uh, so Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft, will require loot box disclosures, uh, applies to quote-unquote new games and game updates that add loot box features, uh, which I thought was, well, uh, and as well as it requires you know, it will require the disclosure of relative rarity or probabilities of obtaining randomized virtual items in games that are available on the platforms. Uh, so this is very much imminent. Targeted implementation is 2020. The other pretty important and parallel announcement is actually that a bunch of, most of the large sort of cross-platform publishers, uh, you won't read the whole list, but it's Activision, EA, you know, all of the big names, have pledged uh, odds, odds disclosures for all new games. So that's not a platform-specific pledge, it seems like. It's a, you know, a, a across our portfolio pledge. Um, so, you know, I think this is a topic we're, you know, somewhat tired of, but the reality is I think this is a, you know, the sort of final important step here because you have uh, Apple, Google Play as well, now Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft, uh, I believe, Steam is the only one I think that doesn't have any formal sort of requirement still. Um, but, you know, otherwise, pretty much all the major distribution platforms now have manager disclosure of, of loot box odds. Um, you know, and then in addition to market level requirements like in China, um, and then again, adding the major publishers that we just talked about will are commit or quote unquote pledging, uh, you know, to, to also have the disclosure. You know, I think the, the concern here was obviously the regulatory intervention. You saw it in some countries in Europe where games had to sort of uh, were either not playable or they removed, uh, you know, loot boxes from the game experience, which obviously limits, you know, what players can consume and, and the limitation of the content. Um, you know, I think it's this is like a sort of very smart, proactive move by the platforms uh, and large publishers to sort of stave off any you know, more intrusive regulation where people, you know, the few, I, I, I noted here, like in Japan, when the, around gotcha, and specific, you know, if you eliminate specific monetization techniques, you know, that could be very significantly detrimental from the business side. So, you know, I think, uh, not to be cynical, but I think that this, you know, disclosure, you know, hopefully will sort of appease um, both the sort of government side that's been sort of in, impacting here, uh, as well as sort of the vocal players um, and saying like, look, like, you know, we've disclosed all this, you know, it's there for you to consume if you want to, you know, read about it. Um, uh, but I think, and I think the reality is, uh, at least from my perspective, it doesn't seem like any of this disclosure has really had any sort of me meaningful impact on the business side, on revenues. Um, so, you know, hopefully those that have been gun shy about loot boxes you know, uh, you know, also have other, you know, uh, other ways to monetize that are accepted. We talked about battle pass. Um, but, you know, I think, uh, 
the reality is like privacy policies in terms of service, I think, you know, I, I would be interested in you guys' feedback here too, but like my sense is, you know, nobody, you know, 99.9% of people, their players aren't, you know, reading these type of disclosures. Um, but, you know, I think from the regulatory side, it hopefully satisfies um, this sort of, uh, sort of view at that there at this point. So, you know, love, look, love to get your guys feedback here around, you know, is these disclosures really having any type of impact on both revenue as well as interest in games? Um, are people reading and being like, Oh, you know, the drop rate for this is X game is different than Y. I'm going to play, you know, game X. I don't, I don't, to me, I don't see that. Um, and you know, again, I'm curious if you guys think this is kind of the end of the regulatory discussion, but anyway, Adam, I'll let you, I'll let you jump in here. <laughs> um, yeah, no, in terms of your your key questions about like revenue impact, whether people actually read the disclosure or, you know, is it enough to avoid further regulation? I think with revenue impact, we've seen from App Annie and Sensor Tower, et cetera, um, that it's no impact. Um, in terms of actually reading the, the disclosure, I don't have any data to support this, um, but I would also assume it's slim to none. Um, but... In terms of your top end players, what they're going to be doing, like on the Reddit boards, et cetera, they're going to be taking a look at these percentages, um, building out little simulations, and then starting to figure out how much things really cost. How much does it cost to get a um, top football player uh, in FIFA, this type of thing, uh, now with hard data instead of estimates? Um, because I see that a lot with, at least on the console side, um, with loot boxes. Um, also, I'd be interested when this data goes live to start looking at, say, like EA, FIFA's, Blizzard's, Hearthstone's loot boxes um, and how they actually have those percentages um, because they've actually been pretty hesitant about this in the past. Um, they've pushed back against a lot of this. And I think it's because they do a lot of kind of hand-waving in the background. And whether that's actually player-friendly, where they're doing things like pity timers and... Um, having to now disclose exactly what, how the pity timers or the, the pity loops actually work. Um, or if they're actually doing some, you know, crazy things on the back end that make it not pure random. Um, so I'll, I'll be interested to see how this stuff actually goes online in the console space. Um, in terms of it being enough to actually avoid further regulation, um, my, my sense is that it's actually unlikely that this is, the the end of the FTC investigation. This will be uh, this will be it. I've been reading through the FTC hearings, um, and I think that they've talked a lot of on say information asymmetry in terms of between a, a player and the developer. And I think these loot box odds definitely go towards that. But I think um, the other aspect is it's still not kind of addressing what I would call like the red herring issues or like the, the big edge cases that are driving all the headlines online that make people so worried about loot boxes. Um, kind of the uh, kids spending too much money or say like uh, gambling addiction, forcing players to spend too much money in these types of situations. Um, so my sense is most likely with the FTC is that kids is likely where legislation will focus on next. Um, we've talked about this briefly in the podcast before, but I would expect that there'd be some push to the industry to self-regulate around preventing kids from purchasing boxes. Uh, JK. Yeah, I don't have much to add here besides, I don't think that this has a huge impact on the player side from a revenue perspective and, and the data that I've seen before, you know, it was marginal, if anything, 
And so maybe the main impact is really just to keep developers more honest about odds, which I think is a good thing. And at least from my perspective, the other interesting part would be for a cross-platform game, I would probably you know, have different odds for, <laughs> for a console versus uh, mobile. I'd, I'd probably be a little more harsh on the mobile side, but if, if we're disclosing odds, that will be harder to do. So that's, that's the only thing I have to add. And yeah, I, I don't really have a take in terms of the regulatory stuff. I wonder how they're going to actually um, like guard this or actually check this stuff, right? <laughs> right, like it, it, you put up a percentage. Are they then running? You know, you know, give me one billion dollars in virtual currency so I can run simulations on your loot boxes so I can confirm these percentage numbers, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, my hypothesis is it's you know the players would have to raise a stink and then maybe the platform would look into it, but. I mean, it, there's just too many games. Uh, maybe, I mean, maybe on the console side, it could be part of the review, but you, I mean, it could be like, you know, it's like the app store where you submit something and then you, you know, would just change it on the server side or something anyway after the, I mean, I think yeah. if, you, if you have bad actors, it's going to be difficult to catch them, yeah. um, you know, at least initially. Yeah, I, I would... This seems pretty similar to like the whole Volkswagen, what was it, the diesel fuel thing? Yeah. Where they could, right, like during the tests, they could make it look like um, <laughs> it was perfect. But then as soon as the thing goes live, they just adjust something on the server and now it's completely different. Yeah. I, I mean, I could see that being on the mobile side just because it's, you know, the market has so many players in it. But, you know, on the console side, I think there's probably probably too much at stake for most of the larger companies to you risk it's not worth the risk of being exposed uh i think probably to do anything like that but on the mobile side i'm sure it happens right now um and i'm sure it will always continue to happen just because it's a little bit easier to kind of you know uh do those type of things and still get you know create a new company or some new publisher account or just you know different things around always ways to navigate around it but um uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think the cross-platform point is actually really interesting because there's obviously probably different appetites for odds on different platforms. Uh, and if and as we see more like true cross-platform games where you're playing the same game experience, you know, on different platforms, like that would be, you know, really interesting. I think on the on the casual side, you know, you we with games that were on Facebook and mobile, like Facebook had a lot of rules around. Um, you know, you had to consume the in-game purchases or the content that you purchase on their platform, you know, on their platform, and you couldn't sort of carry that over to, to iOS or Google Play. Um, so it creates some some complexity for players who are playing cross-platform, which I think to date is not huge, um, you know, for, for a lot of games. But I think based on the trend in the market and being able to, from a technical perspective, have the same experience. Um, it would be interesting to see, especially if different platforms have different rules around this. Um, cool. Should I jump on to the next next article? Let's do it. Okay. All right. Last but not least, uh, this is a, a fun one here. It's actually you know good following up to loot boxes. So we have Apex Legends Forum Furious <laughs> as devs call players asshats and freeloaders. Um, and this is, I believe, from Polygon. So uh you know the the brief synopsis 
Um, and, and, and Adam can probably provide more color around the, um, around the sort of specifics of what's ha been happening in the game. But, you know, so there's a Iron Crown limited time event in the game that offered new skins. Um, and then, you know, players described it as being behind a quote unquote punishing and expensive loot box mechanic, uh, which was estimated at $154 that you would need to spend on in-game currency to acquire all the content from this event. And uh, as one might expect from the article title, the player backlash was quick and swift. Uh, and so the developer respawn backpedaled and they started offering individual items for, for $18 each in in-game currency, which I thought was interesting because <laughs> that's a pretty high price point, but uh, as in a sort of an appeasement. Um, so then the next, the next evolution is, you know, like we talked about, you know, people are on Reddit, the devs uh, have people on Reddit and things get sort of a little bit heated. Uh, the you know, devs are complaining about, you know, the, lamenting about the good old days of, you know, communicating with players before they weren't quote unquote asshats. And when players didn't make demands of devs and devs weren't forced to cower to these demands. So the idea that, you know, there's this immediate cycle of, uh, you know, community sort of backlash and there's immediate like sort of feel that there's immediate need to, to make changes uh, to the game right away. Um, there was further insults. Some of them, I'll skip some of the language here because we don't need it. But, you know, uh, like mentioned, uh, looking at the data of the game, they called, you know, a majority of players freeloaders um, because of the percentage that actually spent on in-game purchases. So, uh, you know, my take is, you know, uh, as I'm not super intimately familiar with this game. Um, I do know it has had obviously some meaningful technical issues and based on some of the feedback on Reddit, it seems to still be the case that there's some pretty significant issues like around the audio, things like this. Um, uh, you know, but I think uh, in my experience, uh, you know, the, <laughs> there's a comment from one of the players in, the, in this on Reddit that really sums up uh, sort of the thing is, you know, quote unquote, you understand that this subreddit is like one to 5% of the player base. And most people don't give a flying naughty word about this stuff going on right uh so you know i think the reality is like you don't ever want to ignore the, uh the you know the community feedback but you know you have to be aware that you know the, the, there's going to be always be a very small very vocal uh you know group of players um so uh you know i think there's probably going to be some type of consequences we've seen this in the past with other i think there was a I can't remember with the other companies, but um, I think there'll be some consequences because EA is tied to this. It's going to get press and, you know, probably be some, quote unquote, you know, sacrificial lamb where someone's going to get fired or something. I don't know um, for what they posted. Uh, you know, but like, again, I'm kind of like, <laughs> I come from the business side. So, you know, I don't want to be a jerk, but like the bottom line is like, is this going to really impact revenue uh, in a meaningful way? Uh, I would guess probably not. Um, you know, we see this a lot in the mobile space, you know, with different sort of super engaged um, player player communities. Uh, I know Scopely's Walking Dead has definitely had this, multi I think, multiple times, con con contest of champions for Kabam, where the players push back. Um, 
you know, and they they say they're going to boycott, you know, spending and this kind of things. But, you know, usually it's, you know, there's some sort of, you know, thoughtful PR speak release and things like this. And then it's back to business as usual. So, you know, I think uh, it'll be interesting to see if this has any meaningful impact. Is this some sort of tipping point with the game? You know, it has a massive audience. So my sense is not really. Uh, Adam, what do, what are you, what's your, what's your thought here? Yeah, I think this is a little bit of a different beast. Um, I'll disagree with you in terms of comping directly to, you know, Scopely's Walking Dead or Kabam's Contest of Champions. Because I think on, like, comparing at least console, PC console versus mobile, it's just a different beast. And I think a lot of it actually has to do with discoverability and user acquisition. Uh, because on, say, mobile, um, if you had some controversy, if, you know, you're 1% to 5% of players, even if they're their most engaged, even if many of them are spenders, leave, you can still kind of do UA around the problem and start targeting players that are, you know, um, going to enjoy your game as a free-to-play game as it is. Versus on PC console, because things like UA are not quite as mature, um, you're relying a lot more on things like streamers um, and PR for the growth there. Um, so if, you know, Reddit is talking, like Reddit then becomes this kind of tip of spear um, being the, the major info source for all the major headlines that are all going back to, um, you know, the, the review sites like Polygon or all the streamers that are talking about your game that are driving players that then, you know, inform those streamers whether they're going to be playing Apex or whether they're going to be jumping back to PUBG. Um, I don't have any numbers really to back this up, but my sense is that it's a it's a bigger problem on PC console than it is on mobile. Um, so you do have to worry a little bit about your controversies here uh, versus mobile. Um, but I guess getting into like the actual event design and how they did it, um, yeah, the, the three main issues here that I see, uh, depth, the engagement sources, and kind of the complete your set design. Uh, on the depth side, they removed duplicates from the boxes um, which was a player-friendly decision, and I definitely support that, but it just kind of forced them to have to control the pace of the boxes a lot more. Um, so, like, the event boxes were $7, I believe, versus $1 for the normal, normal one, uh, $1 for the normal one, and only two boxes could be earned. Like, it's capped at that, which then, you know, this is just kind of a sign of when you remove depth from a system, uh, all of a sudden you have to be a lot more stingy about how you actually pace it. Um, because when you look at even just the spend up of the system, $170, um, that kind of points to that this, this event really doesn't really last all that long in comparison to, to other events that I've seen designed both on the PC console side and on the mobile side. Um, and it's not even just about spend up, it's just engagement, just like how long can players engage in this event and feel rewarded. Um, it just seemed like it was pretty shallow that sense. Um, so yeah, that kind of leads into the sources about how you can actually earn progress in this event and with only two boxes being able to be earned and 24 to complete the set and no free way of earning. This is really what drove, I think, the majority of the controversy. Um, and that's why when they eventually added it to the store, um, this uh, at least, you know, dealt a little bit with the issue, but actually didn't really solve it fully. When they added it to the store, you know, you could direct purchase those items now. You didn't have to randomly assign them. Um, and it was using semi-earnable currency, um, currency that you could purchase or engage with, uh, which was a good way, but um, it did really nothing to kind of quell the concerns about the spend depth of the issue, that this heirloom still needed to be purchased because kind of the third issue with the, the 
event design was that it was all built around this complete the set where you needed all 24 items uh, and actually to unlock a heirloom uh, level cosmetic, which if you want to read into that, let's just look at the highest rarities. That's the legendary skin um, for a melee weapon for a character. So yeah, kind of layering these three things on top of each other, um, removing duplicates, reduce their depth, source which then forced them to to really cap the urn at only about two boxes of the 24 and then having this complete your set thing which is so obviously pushing players to spend this 170 dollars to get the item just brewed up the controversy and like asshat this whole dev memo like you read his text clearly he was having a terrible day and should not have been posting on the forum. should have not have ac- had access to the forum on a Sunday after he was eating spicy food or whatever the hell he was talking about. Um, because Respawn is going to want to bounce back from this. And as you said, this is definitely a sacrificial lamb type of situation. There's, there's pretty clear ways that Respawn can say, well, look, this person's going to, if we remove this person, we can distance ourselves from this controversy, which is really sad for the developer um, to have one really bad day. But at the same time, you shouldn't get away with with poisoning your community like that against so, you. Do you, do you. So do you think they can't? So in terms of recovering from this, I mean, I actually I agree with your point in terms of like it's different from a mobile game in terms of the you know discovery and acquisition. Like, can't you know how do they recover from this? Is it just you know hope to sort of you know, make changes going forward with you know events and content, or do you think there's some more proactive you know? steps they need to take or do you think they can't necessarily recover no no they can definitely recover uh, i think apex still has plenty of good press in terms of being the the highest quality i would say battle royale game there in the market um great feature set they'll still keep their 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 player base going i think it's just um to kind of um to, to bounce back from this i'm not really a pr expert here but i most likely would say they're probably going to be you know gifting a whole bunch of currency giving out <laughs> some cosmetics right like um, these types of things just to kind of say look we we hear you and we won't design events like this in the future um and then hopefully doing it because yeah my sense too is like with this event design this whole like complete the set 170 bucks to get that final heirloom I would just say, like, why wouldn't we just do a battle pass, right? Like, they already have a battle pass in the game. We were talking about battle pass previously on this podcast, right? Like, a battle pass is, like, you put that super amazing item at the end of it, and you have a clear way of earning it versus paying for it. And it drives the spend depth you need. It also gives players a clear path, and it avoids the controversy because battle passes are still seen as very positive from players. So... You can still adjust the design. You can make a very temporary battle pass. But I was surprised that they went with this kind of very loot boxy event design when they had such a clear battle pass. But that that's just my my quick take. JK, what do you think? Yeah, so for me, I definitely agree that Respawn has a lot of ground to make up with their community. I, I, I don't know how, you know, I mean, you, you've mentioned a few ways they could potentially do that, um, but... Uh, hopefully it doesn't, it's, it's, you know, I mean, the game's too good for it not to recover. And the, the bigger point for me is that this just really highlights the need to keep your audience in mind when you're doing systems design. And so for people not familiar, the specific form of gotcha that they implemented is actually called box gotcha. 
And for box gotcha, $154 is actually not too bad if, if we're comparing this to like a mobile mid to hardcore game. And like the more egregious form of this gotcha is called compu gotcha, where it can literally take thousands of dollars to complete. And kind of what kicked this off in Japan is like there was a player who spent over $4,000, did not complete it. And so he got kind of upset. But, you know, um, and since then, Compu Gacha was banned in Japan. This is like the lighter version of that, but it's still a fairly hardcore mechanic from a free-to-play game design perspective. And I, I kind of, you know, I, I believe that this is kind of a bummer and that I think that a lighter form of box gacha probably could does make sense in, in Apex, but there's probably that that guy that, that there's always that guy in, in in the design team that that always says. Hey, we can never bring prices up, but we can always bring prices down. But I think they kind of overshot on this. Uh, but um, again, I think the key lesson is making sure that you keep your audience in mind. And you know, this is always the art in terms of the pricing and the, and the kind of mechanics that you implement. But uh, you know, for me, I think unfortunately they they did overshoot here. And maybe they don't do box gotcha again, which might actually be unfortunate uh, because there might be some cool things that, that they could do with box gotcha. Anyway, that's it from my side. Um, and I think uh, I think we're I think we're done. Unless there's any final comments from you guys. No, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and Josh, for, for people out in the audience who want to catch you next, or is there like a next conference or is there, how, how can people see where you're going to be at next? Uh, yeah, I'll be down in Disneyland, I think with all of you guys also <laughs> for uh, Game Daily Connect. Okay, cool. Yeah. What, what are, are you, are you going to do a panel or what, what's your panel going to be on? Yeah, <laughs> I'm doing a panel on uh, like a emerging technology and disruption around distribution. So That's talking cool. about like game streaming, uh, different stuff like voice games, uh, subscription model. So yeah, it should be good. I have some few interesting panelists around those areas. So I will, uh, I will be there. Great. And then I, you know, and Adam and I will be doing a panel on live ops. And <laughs> coincidentally, we'll, we'll also have Lee Horn, uh, Lee PM on Apex on our panel. So um, yeah, maybe we can ask him some questions about this as well. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I hope he doesn't have uh, yeah harsh words for us about our event design, <laughs> us forcing event design on the podcast. Yeah. But uh, all right, cool. Well, I think there we have it. Uh, thanks everyone for listening, and uh, catch you all next week. Bye. Bye.